Father, lift us up to glory today by the hearing of your word, and let us indeed see in the word the deep, deep love of the Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, there's a few things I don't discuss with Pastor Bill, and maybe we should start because he read this morning the very place in Scripture that I'm going to preach from, all by accident and happenstance. <laughs> And of, by direction, of course, of the Lord. And so I'm going to refer you this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Bill read the whole chapter. I'll read part of the chapter for you this morning. I'll read verses 12 through 23. And as usual, I have no plans to do justice to a passage that long, but I'm going to speak on several points of it that I thought might be of great interest to God's people. And so I refer you to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23, and I'll read. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. O Father, in Jesus' name. We pray he would come again and heal the sicknesses and diseases of all kinds among your people, O Lord. Father, if there was any ever a time in my life where the world and the church need the healing of Christ, it is this time. Father, let the presence of the Savior be known by the Holy Spirit. Let him be present with us through the reading and proclamation of this, your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we have from verse 12, Matthew's talking about pretty much the the end of the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, in the early days, Jesus and John were very closely connected in the popular consciousness. They were part of the same ministry movement in the land, if you will, and John's movement was very big. People came out from all over the place to be baptized by John. The people loved John. If you remember, Jesus tested the Pharisees once by testing their love for John. And he said to them, 
Tell me, was John sent from heaven or from men? And they were afraid to answer. Because if they said from heaven, then they had to believe the message. And if they And if they said he's from men, they had to fear the population who would say, no, he's a real prophet. You know, the people always had some power, and it was always recognized. Even in the politics of the first century. And so Jesus hears a rumor that John had been put in prison, and he went off to another country. He went to Galilee. He was in Judea. That's where John was. Jesus was in Judea, but he went to Galilee, and we'll get to that. But for the moment, I'm trying to start a new series here, and um, I'm doing my best to pull this off and make it a good and profitable series for us, so it's my intention of late to do a series of the acts of Jesus and the apostles, different places in the gospel and different significant events as they occur to me in their relative significance one to the other. And so I'm going to call the series Tales from the Gospel. Now that can be a troublesome title, don't you think? Tales from the Gospel. So I I want to give a couple of disclaimers before I get in to the teaching. So let me clarify at the outset that I'm aware that the word tale comes with some spurious aspects to it. We speak of tellers of tales, right? One definition of a tale is this. Usually, a usually imaginative narrative of an event or story, and B, an, inten- an intentionally untrue report. Sometimes we think of a tale as a lie. Winston Churchill once quipped about that. He said, falsehood always prefers the tale to the truth. So he juxtaposes and makes... Uh, enemies of the tale and the truth. So I'm aware that the title might be initially troublesome for some who consider all tales to be tall tales. But I rather appeal to another definition of the word. A tale is a comparatively simple narrative. It's either fictitious or true, written or recounted orally in prose or in verse, and a tale often recounts a strange event focusing on something or someone exotic or marvelous or supernatural. And that's the definition I want to go with for tale. And I hope we can all agree that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate creator with the Father, is at the very least marvelous. He's certainly exotic. And at his very highest, he's supernatural. So he falls into my category here. So let it not be said, friends, that your pastor considers the gospel narratives tall tales or imaginative stories. I do not consider that. I'm also aware that it could be suggested that if you have to explain your title before you begin the sermon, perhaps your title should be changed. It's kind of like when you have to explain a joke it's like, it's not going to be funny because he missed the joke and you're explaining it. And after you explain the joke, they always go, oh yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so maybe I could just change the title. But you've known me for a while. And I kind of like controversy. It stimulates me. I don't mind a great argument, an intellectual thrust and parry. It doesn't bother me at all. I find controversy intellectually, spiritually, emotionally stimulating. So bring it on. I love a good argument. 
And I believe that most, if not all, of evangelism should dwell in the excitement of good arguments. And so at the very least, I use this title as an irritant to stimulate controversy. It's my secret belief that most criticism, especially the criticisms of reformed people, are born out of a love of little irritants and the spiritual gift of hyper-correction. You know, I was talking about this with Andrew last night. Andrew Bellog came by. The whole Bellog clan called me at 6 o'clock. I was cooking this little tiny steak. And can we come by? Have you know about this yet? They're in the area. And I'm like, guys, I know you're in the area, but you're not welcome here. <laughs> Friendlies, the food isn't as good as here, but go to Friendlies. But they showed up anyway. And so they came in and Karen, I, well, I had to take my steak and cut it up and make an, make an hors d'oeuvre out of it. And uh, little Judah ate a piece and he said, I'm not going to drink any water because this steak is so good I don't want to wash the taste out of my mouth. That was one good steak. But we had to throw on several thick pork chops to make this all work. But it, all this to say, Andrew and I started talking about the Reformed churches and our opinions about churches and and those kinds of things. And I told them that I'm waiting for the honest Reformed church to plant their church in the area and to put up their sign and have an honest title on the sign of who they really are. The Jot and Tittle Church of Lakeville. Or, and I said, well, maybe we could have it be the Straining of the Gnat Church. And Andrew said, how about the Swallowing of the Camel Church? <laughs> And so we had a little fun at our own expense because we all do care about picayune little things like the name of the, of the sermon. But really, the reason I named the sermon that is I like it. That's the reason. And I said to Karen, you know, I really struggle with this sermon this week. And she said, because she doesn't like to read them ahead of time when she's doing the printout. And she said, well, I looked at the title, and it's a really great title. <laughs> so Karen likes it too. So we'll retain the title as written in order that we may use words to their fullest representative function rather than bow to some obscure social norm. But really, the real reason, as I said, is I like the title and my purpose conforms to the second meaning of the word that I have noted, which is a perfectly legitimate definition of the word tale. All right? And friends, remember, gospel tales are stories written or proclaimed. And you know what? They were tales before they were written. They were proclaimed before they were written, they were lived before they were proclaimed, and they were marveled at in every case, and I hope to inspire in us again some reason to marvel at the stories of Christ and the apostles as we go through the series and the beloved gospel texts. And so we have our text. Verse 12 speaks of John being put in prison and, and that Jesus heard about it. It doesn't say that John was put in prison. Did you notice that? It rather appeals to a story circulating that John was in prison. And if we're careful with our gospel reading, we'll find that for a time, there was some confusion about exactly what happened to John. Where did he go? Not everyone knew. We know that at some point, John had access again to some of his disciples because he called them. He was able to talk to them from his prison cell to investigate the identity of Jesus. He wanted to reinvestigate. He knew, but isn't it amazing that the great prophet was still yet uncertain 
are uncertain again because he had heard certain rumors about things Jesus had done. If, if we're careful with our gospel reading, we'll find the first century is bathed in rumor, unsubstantiated stories. And we want to be careful that we don't become that and we don't react according to that. And that's part of what my message is about today because Jesus leads us in this. And so we read when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And you remember Jesus' response, right? Go tell John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them, the dead are raised. You know, he said these things and that's all he said. He didn't say, oh yeah, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the real guy, just go tell him that. He didn't say that. He gave him the facts of, of prophecy to substantiate who he was. He didn't answer and go defensive about some rumor about himself. He just said, tell John this. And he knew that John would receive him. And I'd love to say a whole lot of other things and a whole lot of other gospel tales about John and his final days and the political schemes that went to bring him to that point, but we'll get there. Now, we should find it of some import that this text is juxtaposed to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Now, when I wrote that, I didn't know Pastor Billy was going to read that for us, so we all have it fresh in our minds. Jesus went into the wilderness, and Satan shows up. Jesus is hungry. Many days and nights have gone by. He's all alone in the wilderness. He's not attended by angels, though he's the Son of God. He's alone. He is in his humanity. He is in the wilderness. And the devil comes to taunt him. Throw yourself down from here. He brings him in a vision to the top of the temple, which, by the way, was 18 stories high by modern calculations. Throw yourself down if you're the Son of God. It can't hurt you. Let me tell you something. If Jesus had obeyed the devil, the devil would become the author and the, and the, and the authority in the universe. You understand the importance of that gospel tale. And so Jesus doesn't answer the fool according to his folly. He knows the scriptures. Hey, Satan knows the scriptures, friends. He's had a long time to study them. He knows the prophecies. He knows where the church is headed. But it's his, his ever-present scheme to disrupt our destination. So he comes fresh from his battle with Satan. And when Satan's plan was foiled by his spiritual superior, turn these stones into bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His plan was foiled by his spiritual superior. Jesus could not be tempted. He could not be fooled. He could not be put in a defensive posture. He's the God of the universe. It's his game, not yours and not mine. Certainly not Satan's. So when he foils Satan's plan, he comes not only out of the wilderness, but out of the presence of angels. And Billy read that too. They attended him and ministered to him after the ordeal was done. And so he had to battle the devil without angelic support, but upon his victory, he enjoyed the heavenly benefits of being the incarnate Son of God. Now, I don't know what the angels did to refresh that withered and weasoned and thirsty and hungry Savior, but I'll bet it was awesome. And the angels came and refreshed the Son of God. 
And so we read, the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. It could be said that Jesus went into the desert to what? Pull down strongholds, to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and to even wield that sword against the father of lies. And so what's his first maneuver with regard to setting off his ministry? He has to react to this troubling news. He's given news. Satan loves to use bad news to incite us to make impulsive, self-destructive decisions. Jesus shows us not to do that. In the desert, Satan met him face to face. In Judea, he meets him the same way he meets every believer, by stealth, friends. And so it's as if the devil is saying through his proxies, you know, while you were off from the scene for 40 days, abandoning your fellow prophet, you got the better of me in scriptural arguments, but my co-workers were busy dismantling your ministry, imprisoning your prophet while you were gone. You see? And Jesus could have run off and begin a whole protest meeting to release John to the people. He could have easily rounded up the troops, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't immediately protest the imprisonment of John. We have to remember that the ministry and the message is more important than the minister and the messenger. And John knew this, and John was a faithful minister, but even he knew the time was fleeting and was coming to a close, his time. He was never a man enamored with his own self-importance. He knew there was another who would succeed him, one who was greater than him, and he even said it, remember? Whose sandals I'm not worthy to loose. And so he leaves, Jesus leaves the region. He absconds. He hears about the turmoil. He hears about the trial of John. He has fought with the devil. He can fight with anyone. But he chooses not to fight. He leaves. He has Another appointment, as it were. And so R.T. France, in his commentaries on this subject, wrote this. This withdrawal was in part a matter of political wisdom. Friends, Jesus was politically savvy if he was anything. And the first century Palestine was swirling with political intrigue and drama, friends. And so he writes, in view of John's conflict with Antipas, his successor, or in view of John's conflict with Antipas, his successor could not be safe in the same area. Jesus was already known to be the successor of John. If John wasn't safe, Jesus couldn't be safe. It was too early in the gospel route to fight what might be the final battle, you see? He had more things to do. And so the Lord made the decision to return to Galilee. And I hope we can see that the first century, century was rife with political conflict. Jesus succeeded in unifying all the opposing factions in the region. And as I've said, I talked of triangulation a couple of weeks ago. You remember the enemy of my enemy is my friend? There were a lot of natural enemies there who suddenly became unified because Jesus was their enemy. And so he succeeded in unifying what should have been some very strange bedfellows. How about Caiaphas the high priest 
and Caesar. He unified the Jews and the Romans. He needed them both to crucify Jesus. He unified the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I hope you know they're mortal enemies. The Pharisees don't like the Sadducees, and the Sadducees don't like the Pharisees. The Sadducees today are like the liberal churches. They don't believe in the miracles. You know, I had a, one of my first pastors in the United Church of Christ. He says, I, I don't believe in the virgin birth. He's a Sadducee, right? A Pharisee would say, you're crazy. The word of God says that there was a virgin birth, and they would fight tooth and nail. Jesus united them. How about Herod and Pilate, who never liked each other? They got together in Jesus' trial, and they became friends that day, Luke says, right? He united everybody against himself. He had some work to do. He couldn't just go and defend John on the moment, on the spur. So if we make some sort of contemporary application here, we might say that Jesus is fighting the good fight, and for the moment, the fight has more to do with preaching than it does with protesting. And so we read, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, Jesus hasn't chosen any disciples. We don't think of it this way. That's why I call it one of the gospel tales. Jesus is out en route by himself preaching in Galilee. If you study the chronology of this, both Matthew and Mark will agree. Jesus went off preaching the gospel of, of John's gospel of repentance, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judah was the, or Judea rather, was the political swamp of Jesus' day. That's where all the establishment intellectual elite were, all right? That's where they all based themselves out of Jerusalem. And the fight Jesus knew from prophecy would ultimately be fought there, but today is not that day. For now, there were other concerns. Jesus knew what each of us must come to learn, and that is that the nature and the power of politics and programs and policies of politicians only concern themselves with temporal things. Friend, there isn't a politician on the stage today that has a program that will enhance your eternity. They can wreck your temporal life, that's for sure. They could maybe enhance your technical life if they cared enough, but they can't do anything about your spiritual and eternal life except restrict your access to the gospel in this life. And that's the, the place where we step in. And that's the place where the churches have to stand against the politicians. That's the place. So Judea was the political swamp of the day. But it's the ministry of the Lord and the ministry of his church to keep eternal concerns front and center, not always temporal. You know, I've talked to a lot of people of late. In fact, Karen was telling me, Karen Kimball was telling me about Gwen. Gwen was so troubled with the state of the world. I hear a lot of elderly people say this. My father-in-law says it. He's so troubled with the state of the world today and what is being left to the children and grandchildren. But it came to the point where you have to be careful as a believer not to be overwhelmed by these things. We don't rest our thoughts on the temporal, but on the eternal. And so Karen told me that Gwen, they had to take a little hiatus from the news stories of the day, which I almost hesitate to call them news. Now, if I haven't told you this, let me tell you now, I no longer even believe in outrage. You know how everybody's outraged today? You got a... Got a uh, 
new voting act in Georgia. Oh, I'm outraged. Leave some people out. Uh, wh- whatever it might be, everybody's outraged. It seems, it seems to me, though, that all outrage, particularly media outrage, is staged and artificial. I don't believe those people are outraged by anything. I really don't. I think it plays well for ratings, although that hasn't done them that well lately either. And for the moment, it seems to be a very useful tool to manipulate the opposition and to energize your own troops. Get them outraged. We're all mad all the time. I'm not mad enough. Turn on the news again. Now I'm good and mad. It seems to me we have a, become a society of outrage. And whose outrage will win, Right? And I should say that this is a great weakness with regard to, the, to our ministry life. We of all people should not be surprised by sin. That would, make a, that would make a very good sermon title, Surprised by Sin, right? Isn't there one surprised by grace? We shouldn't be surprised by sin. Friends, we're the Reformed Church. Total depravity. What don't you get about depravity? What don't you get about total Sin is bound to break out, right? There's bound to be some sin. And I'm outraged by it, I can tell you that. (laughs) We should learn from Jesus that this is destructive of our ultimate purpose, which cannot be driven by outrage and anger. Friends, I can't be a good pastor without love. I have to have other things in my outrage. I have to have other gifts than firing everybody up all the time. We become a society that will not react to anything until we're worked up into a rage. Friends, let me tell you something. We endured a lot of persecution as homeschoolers going back 30 years or more. Our families, our churches, our friends thought we were crazy. And now you got soccer moms out there finding out they're indoctrinating their children in the public schools and they're just catching on. Right? Thank God for COVID. That gave them time to go into the classroom where they really don't want you. And they found out what was going on there. And people on the streets are like, geez, the Casiris were right all along. Uh, They didn't say that, but you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, they thought we were making our kids strange. They're ruining them. Friends, it, it saved them from so much turmoil. So we should learn from Jesus that conducting a life by outrage, reacting to the latest outrageous media post, John's in prison, right? It can't work that way for us. There's no such thing anymore, it seems, as calm debate, respectful exchange of ideas based on demonstrable facts. Everything's an outrage, even a moral outrage. You know, You notice how closely linked politics and morality are today? You ever hear, you can't legislate morality? But if you disagree with me, you want to kill people, I can tell you that. If you don't like my program, it's because you hate people of a certain race or you disagree with me. This is all to engender outrage today. If you disagree with me, you want to kill people. If you choose liberty over safety, you're endangering us all. If you heat your homes or drive your cars too much, you're destroying the planet and you have to be stopped. If I don't like a political leader, it's not because I disagree with him, because he's obviously a modern-day Hitler. And so superlatives rule the news cycle of our times. Friends, have you heard 
anything today that doesn't have to do with something that's either skyrocketing or plummeting. COVID deaths are skyrocketing. The markets are plummeting. I mean, they can't just like go up and down a little. I mean, there's no like use of words anymore. It's always superlatives, friends. Beware the superlative. It's probably not true. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew what we need to know, and that is that not every battle is worth fighting. Timing matters. Our rhetorical exchanges, that means our speech, right? Our political battles to the opposition, but to us, they're spiritual battles. We have to be careful how we wield our rhetoric. And so they're spiritual battles to the Lord. Our rhetorical energies need to be harnessed for the sake of Christ and the kingdom of God. And so Jesus leaves Judea in all its political turmoil, and he heads north to Galilee. He doesn't say, you know, I'm going to go down to Judea, I'm going to run for office, and I'm going to straighten that place out. He doesn't do that. He goes to Galilee. A lot less, it's still under Herod, but there's a lot less political intrigue up there. He can sort of blend in for a while, and guess what he has to do? What did Jesus have to do before he went to the cross? He had to become famous. A lot of people went to the cross that you never heard of. In fact, the only two I can give you by name is Jesus and Spartacus. The other two, we don't know the names, right? But they crucified thousands and thousands of people. And they're pretty obscure people. But why do we, when we think of crucifixion, we think of Jesus because he was a potent figure in the popular mind before he went to the cross. He had more business to do than deal with even beloved John's turmoil of the moment, right? So he heads north to Galilee, verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, which is also in Galilee, so he leaves Judea, he goes to Nazareth, right? We know famously that didn't work out so well. They said, don't we know this guy? How was he, he telling us the, the word of the Lord? How is he saying he's fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy? In your hearing, this prophecy is fulfilled. They were aghast. He grew up down the street. He played with my kids. It didn't, it didn't work well there, right? So he left Nazareth. He, came, he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are, of course, areas very anciently that were distributed among the 12 tribes or clans of, of Israel. They were archaic geographical references even in Jesus' time, all right? But for Isaiah, who prophesied to them 750 years before Jesus' time, they were still in use. Nazareth, as we know, is also Galilee, is in Galilee, and it's the hometown of the man Jesus. He lived there with his mother. For a time, Joseph, who seems to disappear from the narratives, there's all kinds of theories where Joseph went. I have one. Um, he was there with James's brother, with Judas, his brother, right? Jude, his real name, Jude's real name is Judas, by the way, um, or Judah in the, in the Hebrew sense. So we all know that familiarity does indeed breed contempt, and so Jesus heads to another place, a more populous seaside city. Friends, at the time, Capernaum was very populous. It was a fishing town. It was a, a, a town of agriculture and industry, um, and... Uh, populated in the tens of thousands. I think I read a number of 47,000 people. So it's a pretty good-sized ancient city, wouldn't you say? Um, so Capernaum plays a great part in the ministry of the Lord, and I'd like to point out a few things about it that we might not always think about. First, Capernaum is the home of Peter, right? 
That's where Peter lived at that time. He also lived somewhere else, which I won't get into, but at that time he lived there. And he lived there with his brother Andrew and his family. And all we know about his family is that Peter lives there with his wife and his wife's mother. We don't know about any children, but Peter has a wife, beloved wife, and he loves his mother-in-law. Right? That much we know. And so a second point is that both Matthew and Mark speak about the calling of the first four disciples from this city of Capernaum. And so as Bill read this morning and as I've read to you, Jesus goes out first, he preaches alone, then he walks by the sea, chooses these two brothers, he chooses these two brothers. I have a great theory as to why he liked choosing brothers, but I'm not telling you my theory today. And I also believe they were cousins, but uh, they were business partners. And um, I like the, uh, I like the um, uh, series they're showing on, on television, The Chosen. I like it okay, but I, I just think I have... The, the things that are actually inserted that aren't biblical, that are conjectured, I think they, they made a couple of uh, errors there. First of all, they, don't they have Peter, and I haven't seen much of this, but don't they have Peter as a smuggler who's like working under the table because he doesn't have enough money in the fishing? I see Peter as very prosperous fishing business. Or why would it matter that he, that he left it? You know what I mean? I, I saw him as a very prosperous businessman uh, with his, in his family business, with probably employees and that kind of thing. But again, we don't know. These things are conjecture. So the chosen can go and, and say what they like, and you can like it if you want. And so we read verses 18 to 22. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. They gave up something valuable. They followed him. It costs you to follow Jesus. And it doesn't say that they went and said, all right, we'll leave the nets, but you know, um, what, do we, what do we make by the hour? Do we get overtime? Are there benefits? You know, being fishers of men, what's the benefits of being fishers? Is there a union of fishers of men? I mean, how does this work? You don't hear any of that. Just hear, they left and they followed him. No questions asked. It's kind of miraculous. (laughs) And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. You know, he calls them the sons of thunder, Boanerges. Remember their name? And you're reading? So I, like, we can conjecture, why are they sons of thunder? Was Zebedee thunder? Did he have a great booming voice? Well, we don't know. But Zebedee is of lesser importance, apparently, than the fact that he called James and John. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Right? So Peter and Andrew are brothers. John and James are another pair of brothers. And all four of them, along with Zebedee, are partnered in the fishing business. He famously calls them, bids them to leave their nets and to follow after him. And, of course, they do just that, and they do it. Mark's favorite word? Immediately. I suggest to you that there's more here than just the miracle of the efficacious call of the first disciples. Now, I know we're Reformed peoples, and we know when Jesus calls you, you come, right? Jesus preached the gospel of repentance in Galilee before he called the first disciples, and both Matthew and Mark confirm this. Jesus um, heard that John was in prison. He went according to prophecy into Galilee. He brought light to a dark place, we're told, He brought life to a dead place. 
He brought inclusion of Gentiles to a Jewish place. He preached, became known, and then called his first disciples. And from a doctrinal point of reference, they answered the call because it was his call. Jesus said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, and immediately they follow. Right? There's always a human side to sovereignty, too. I think we know that. Right? You know that two seemingly opposite motives are always in effect at the same time. One is God is sovereign. And number two is man is still responsible. Even though God is sovereign, you're still responsible for what you do. And um, that takes a series in itself to explain. But it works out quite well. You know, a paradox isn't a contradiction. It's a seeming contradiction that upon further investigation can be unraveled with study and wisdom and good pastoring and preaching. Um, So he did all those things. But just as when Jesus said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead man came, so they also came. But from a purely human point of reference, what young, zealous son of Israel would not want to be a part of such a new and exciting ministry as the early years of Jesus of Nazareth, who by the time of their calling already had a multitude of followers? You know, it's easy to follow the trend. It's when it got hard they started absconding in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's when it got really difficult that Peter denied him three times. He isn't denying him three times in Capernaum. Now I have my theories as to why Jesus chose pairs of brothers who might also have been pairs of cousins or half-cousins. But I'll leave the explanation for another time <laughs> and for another tale. And so Mark goes on to say that when they enter Capernaum proper, see, they're by the sea, but then they come into the city, and it's a bustling fishing town, all right? They come into Capernaum, but it's not bustling. Why not? It's, it's the Sabbath. Okay, so read it from Mark's gospel. They come in, it's the Sabbath. And so they go first to the synagogue to worship. They don't even go back to the home. Friends, the women weren't required to be at the worship. They were home. And we'll find out later from other gospel references that this is the famous synagogue where the daughter of Jairus was raised from the dead. Remember Jairus? Remember Jairus? He was the ruler of that local synagogue, which, friends, would have made him, in effect, Peter's local pastor. And Andrew and James and John's local pastor. He was the ruler of that synagogue. They would have known him. They would have known him very well. It's in that place, at that service, that the Lord delivers a man from an evil spirit that's overtaken him, and there's an audible, verbal exchange between the Lord and the Spirit. The Spirit speaks out something to the, to the effect, Lord, what have you to do with me? You know how they always cower when Jesus exerts his authority, right? And everyone could hear this. The Spirit was speaking through this man who was possessed, And so we read, they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. You know, there was all kinds of attempts at exorcisms that failed. Really all throughout history, but certainly in that time. Jesus comes in and just says, come out of him. That's what he said in the Gospel of Mark. Just come out of him. Get out of here. And he did. And the man was in his right mind. Jesus had command over the spirit world, and it had to be known. 
it would not do for the Lord to be killed or to follow John into prison before he was made famous throughout the land. And so we read, and immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Verse 28. There's always a schedule for the Lord, friends. And the schedule is of ultimate importance to the veracity of the gospel tales we tell. The schedule is implicit in the telling of the tale. And that's for respect of the sovereignty of God as delineated through the ages through prophecy. Jesus is following a blueprint that's already written. It's already proclaimed. And most of the people in Israel memorized most of those prophecies. So he could just throw them out there. We have to exegete them today and go and tell people where they come from and what they mean. You know? Um, Because what we know is like, what we memorize is like the verses to our favorite songs. And what they memorize was verses from their favorite psalms. Right? So there was always this schedule. Now I've I got a point of interest that I've, I've never heard any other preacher point out, and I'm going to try to develop this for you, but it's a conclusion I've reached, and it's, very, it's a very clear fact if we're careful with Mark's treatment of the subject, and that is the importance of Capernaum in the ministry of Christ. Not only the importance of Capernaum, but the importance of Peter's ancestral home. And that's it. Not only did Galilee become the Lord's initial ministry outreach? Not only did Capernaum become his base of operations, but Peter's own home was the Lord's personal ministry headquarters. And the place of several other miraculous occurrences and testimonies of great faith. And of that, there can be no doubt. This is why later he said, oh, Capernaum, Capernaum, if the works that were done in Tyre and Sidon, if the works that were done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It'll be more tolerable for the, for the inhabitants of Nineveh than it will be for you. So he preached to some dead ears even in Capernaum where he did many, if not most, of his great and mighty works. And so we read, as soon as they came out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon. So they went, Jesus came, they walked, he walked through Galilee preaching, and then one morning, on a Sabbath morning, he came to Capernaum by the sea, and he called the four disciples, and they went, that was probably the day before, and then they went to the synagogue, and then they went back to Peter's house. And they entered the house of Simon and Andrew, so they lived together, and James and John, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick with fever, you know the story, Right? She lay sick with fever. Fever refers to any sort of sickness of the time, and it probably did result in a fever. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left, and she served them. Very important. They didn't have time to make meals. Had to keep the women healthy. Now, that's a lesson I have learned, and it has served me very well over the years. The miracle was so complete that the Lord not only established the house of Peter as his home base and headquarters, but he made it a point to energize and heal the wait staff in order that he and his new band of disciples would not have to trouble themselves about meals and amenities. So the Lord goes about the region preaching, friends. First he goes it alone, then he takes the message of John's gospel of repentance to the people. Matthew and Mark point out that Jesus preached alone first 
And it says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Sounds very much like Jonah's preaching. Now the word repent, friends, is variously defined. The verb form of the word is metanoio. Metanoio, right? The noun is metanoia, I believe. And it means to turn around or to change course. And we always say that, but I really think in this instance, it has a different emphasis. It means stop in your tracks. Stop and listen to the new message, to the new messenger on the scene. So repent. Listen up. There's a new prophet in the land. There's a new gospel that's concerned, as always, with repentance from sin. But it's also concerned with belief in the messenger. This new prophet calls for belief in the messenger also. But this belief is to be based in the revealed identity of the messenger. John never came and said, believe in me. Jesus did. And that was first and foremost. And so for the first time, friends, in Jewish history, there's a messenger in the land who's more important than his message. Right? Friends, you can come to know Jesus Christ, and I hope we know this, without knowing all the doctrines of Christ at the same moment. You learn about him later. You learn more about the intricacies of his message as you move on in your Christian life. But initially, you meet the messenger, and that's the important part. And friends, in the final analysis, it's enough. So friends, what makes for a nominal Christian? You know what I mean by a nominal Christian? Nominal refers to name. So when you're a Christian by name, but not by commitment, or not by works, right? You're a Christian, Christian by name, by name only, you might say. A nominal Christian who is one who believes the message, but does not believe in the messenger. Think about that. I think you'll see that's exactly what a nominal believer is. He likes the message. Do unto others as they do unto you. I like that. That's, that sounds wise. You know? Um, you know, give to the poor. Love one another. Love your enemies. Love each other as I have loved you. We love all that. That doesn't take a lot of... Uh, you know, deep thinking to say that's wise wisdom, right? But to recognize the messenger, that became the ministry of Christ. It's the messenger himself. Remember, he tested them too. And he put them to the test so often. Remember, he came out and he had these multitudes by the lake. And by the way, the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of uh, Tiberias. It was named after the second emperor by Herod. It's called the Sea of Genesaret, which goes back to the Old Testament, Chinneroth or Kinneret. So it has all these names, but it's the Sea of Galilee, and alas, it's not a sea. It's a lake. Okay? But, uh, and Luke calls it a lake. But Jesus has all these followers. They're all coming to him by the, by the sea. And what does he do? He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Friends, I'm not sure what I would have done with that at the time. You have to know the messenger is the important part. Who can understand it? They said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And they followed him no more. He weeded them out. The ones that were just there for the miracles. He wanted to be recognized by the miracles, and he says that specifically. But if you're just coming to Jesus for the miracles, you're a nominal Christian. You come to him because when he... because of what Peter said afterwards, he said, okay, they left. And by the way, it says his disciples left and followed him no more. So they were believing disciples and unbelieving disciples. And the unbelieving disciples are nominal believers, right? They don't believe in the messenger. They like the message, but now you've gone too far. 
And so he said to Peter and the, and the apostles, he said, aren't you going to go with him? And what did Peter say? And this is when you know you're not nominal anymore. Where will we go? Yeah, you, you say some hard things, and i got to be honest with you. I wish you didn't say that because we would still have all those people with us if you did. The church would be bigger. But you, you ran them off with a hard saying, but where are you going to go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. That's where you have to be. You have the words of eternal life. You have to know he's the source. He's the author. He's the messenger, and he's bigger than the message. Now, so I don't suggest that the word can be disconnected from the Lord. In the beginning it was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? What I am saying is that where every other messenger began their preaching with, thus saith the Lord, Jesus begins with, I say. Verily I say unto you. And so he preaches, I say to you. You know, John would have had to say, the Lord saith. But he says, I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That had to do a number on the establishment. I say to you that whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. I say to you, you'll by no means get out till you've paid the last penny. You've heard that someone said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who's divorced commits adultery. I say to you, he's the Lord. The message is of great importance, but the messenger is of ultimate importance. He can say nothing to draw away the true believer. So he calls the first four disciples and they go about Galilee preaching to the people of Galilee. And you know what's interesting, a little side note, if you read a little further, the next disciple he chooses is Matthew. Now he's got these fishermen, right? And his two brothers and they're workers and their hands are tough and they work all night sometimes, right? For straight pay, no overtime, no union, and then he walks down the road, and they come to the toll of a city. And, and, and the taxpayers, the publicans, are at the, the city's gate, and they take a toll. And Matthew's one of the publicans. And, of course, he's enormously wealthy. He throws a great feast. There's a lot of great Renaissance art about the feast of the house of Levi. And he throws a great feast in his palatial home because he's so rich, and he's a Jew, right? And Peter and Andrew and James and John must be thinking, how could he choose this guy? How's he going to sleep out on the roads with us? Gospel tales, friends. Things that really must have happened, right? And so he calls the first four disciples. They go about Galilee preaching to the people. And if you remember, they have a distinct accent that is recognized later back in Judea when they say, you also are in a Galilean. I can tell by the way you speak. I am not, ma'am. I do not know the man. Remember? They knew by his speech that drastic northern accent. And so he preaches to them, he delivers them from demons, he heals a leper, and he returns with the disciples to Peter's home, and we read, and again he entered Capernaum after some days, because he's running around the countryside, right? And it was heard that he was in the house, not in a house, in the house, the only house referred to, 
back to Peter's. You know, Mom, get dinner ready. And so immediately, again, Mark's favorite word, the crowds gather again around the house. He can't be left alone. He's been made famous. He comes back to the headquarters, and they, they know he's there. The gossip chain of the first century was fantastic. It went around. They knew everything right away. Before he got back, they knew he would be headed back there. So they come down the road on their crutches and in their litters, and there's so many people, they swarm the house, and they can't even get in. You remember the story, right? And again, he entered Capernaum. And he went into the house. And immediately the crowds gather around the house. Now, if we follow carefully, we'll, um, what we'll see is that the friends of the paralytic man opened the roof. Remember that? They couldn't get in. They, they wanted their, their brother to be healed so much. And, he's, and he was like a lump of flesh paralyzed on a, on a bed, on a litter. And they couldn't get in. So they go up on the roof. They had flat tile roofs in those days. And they dismantle the thing. And they rip it apart. And they lower the guy down through the roof. And Jesus is okay with it. I got a gospel tale for you. You think Peter was okay with that? So they open a large hole in the roof of a house and let their paralyzed friend come into close contact with Jesus And so a truly great miracle is done, and that had to go out all over the place. That's a great thing to gossip about, right? You should have seen what they did to the fisherman's house. I don't know if you want them in your house. (laughs) Friends, as a contractor and a builder, my whole life, did a lot of erecting and fixing roofs. This fact has not escaped my notice, friends, or my earnest disapproval. And I ask the Lord's forgiveness for that. Verse 14, it might be that it might be fulfilled which was spoken. Back to the schedule. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So the Lord went to Capernaum, that prophecy might be fulfilled. And the Lord preached the gospel of light and truth, that prophecy might be fulfilled. And the Lord called disciples that prophecy might be fulfilled. And we can conclude that the Lord called us according to his will. That prophecy might be fulfilled. You're not a mistake. Our lives have been laid out the way they've been laid out, friends. That his will might be fulfilled. You married your wife and birthed your children, supported your family, and worshipped your God in spirit and in truth All that the will of God might be fulfilled, not by accident. And so there's no gospel tale that can be told apart from the fact that the Lord has a blueprint to follow, and that blueprint is Old Testament prophecy. So I'll give you another example of this, and we'll come to a close with this example. There was perhaps a more well-known subtlety of satanic temptation to disrupt the ministry itinerary of Jesus. All right? He tried throwing John in prison, or rather having Herod do it for him, right? Herod was so easily manipulated by the devil. Um, but Satan knew the plan well, and he knew that if he could succeed in tempting Jesus to come back to Judea at a politically charged moment in time, that he might well violate that prophetic game plan, which he could not violate, not even to save his beloved friend from a dreaded Deadly disease. And so, if you'll turn to John 10, beginning at verse 22, we find that Jesus 
entering the temple in Jerusalem. And then we read this. And the Jews surrounded him, friends. The Jews, see, he came back and the Jews surrounded him. And they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And then we read this. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. That's a Jesus kind of answer, isn't it? Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan. It wasn't time. He had to go away again. He went to the place where John baptized at first. And so Jesus comes to Judea. He preaches and teaches. He proclaims himself. And he needs to abscond in order to delay his final moment, which must occur, occur rather at Passover. It, his final act has to be as the lamb slain for the sins of Israel. It has to be that. I've belabored that for years. If you've been here at all, you should, you should know that. It's got to be according to the divine schedule of events. He can't just come in and have them seize him now. But while he's away, he's tempted to come before his time. And Satan is so sneaky here. And this time it's due to that severe sickness of his friend. And so we read in the very next passage, Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany town of Mary and her sister Martha. So Mary, Martha, Lazarus, siblings. Friends of the holy family, if you will. And therefore the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. In other words, if you love Lazarus, you'll come right now because now's when we need you. And he said, this sickness is not unto death. He didn't say it to them. He said it to the messenger. But for the glory of God, the son of Man, uh, the Son of Man may be glorified through it. The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. That's what the sickness was for. Now, if you're following, you'll note that though Jesus cannot be tempted to change his route for the sake of John, he will not be tempted to do it for the sake of Lazarus and even for the beloved family of Bethany. Imagine the glory deficit if Jesus just came too soon and healed him of a fever. Right? Imagine the deficit. He had a plan. It had to glorify God. He had to come and proclaim himself the resurrection and the life. Not I give resurrection. Not I, not I bestow it. I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. He came and proclaimed that to them. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. They said, we know we'll, we'll come forth in the last day. They understood resurrection. He said, no, you don't understand it. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Eat my body. Drink my blood, he said. And so they called for him. But note what he says. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Lazar and, her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place that he was. He didn't come. Then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And then they went back to Bethany. Bethany's right near Jerusalem, and that's where he stayed the last week of his life. One account says, with Simon the leper, and it's into, who was, they don't say who Simon the leper was. I suggest to you he was a leper healed by Christ, um, who had a very nice 
home that he could put up Christ and 12 of his friends. And, um, and the Bethany people lived right there too. It was, a, it was a Sabbath day's journey into Jerusalem. They could walk there. And so the Lord clearly had a schedule that Satan tried continually to disrupt. Scheduling is of divine importance. Things must happen as prophesied. Jesus may seem late to the scene, which the sisters of Bethany accused him of, but the operative word is seems, friend. We find that his timing is always designed to bring maximum glory to God. Oh, if we could, if we could internalize that. He called the dead man to life late? No, on time. And by the way, there's a subtlety here. It had to be four days. Because by Jewish reckoning in three days, no corruption had yet taken place. It had to be four. He had to be good and decomposed so that Jesus could be warmed. Oh, Master, don't open the, don't open the, the tomb. Surely there's a great stench. Jews feared stenches. You weren't, and by the way, they ex- fully expected that when that stone rolled away, Jesus was going to go in there and touch that dead man and exempt himself from being at Passover, which he could not do because he had to go to Passover and die. He didn't have seven days left to get clean. But he didn't do that. He surprised them all. He called them out, and he just came out on his word. Talk about the glory of God. So he delayed his coming according to God's timing. He called the dead man to life on time, and though he may seem far away at times, surely the gospel assures us that he's called us, each one of us, in his time, and he's not finished with us yet. Father, in Jesus' name, you who began a good work in us, finish it until the day of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.